This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Alright, it is good to be here tonight. Unfortunately, I don't have to resolve the conflict, but I get to speak about the one who will. Um, this morning I spoke uh, in the morning service, and uh, well, first of all, you know, it's a gift to be able to, to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. Uh, it's a huge blessing to me. And I was speaking this morning, and I was feeling, uh, feeling nervous. And David was in the back, and I was, because I was nervous, I was speaking quickly. And David in the back was being very kind, and he was trying to tell me to slow it down a little bit. And he was going, slow it down a little bit. And I thought he was saying, speed it up, because I was nervous. <laughs> so I thought, I thought, I feel like I'm talking fast already, but okay. And so I started talking faster and faster. And then David kept doing this, and then he gave up. And I kept going at my fast pace. And later on, I saw David signaling again. And this time, I think he tried a different signal, just telling me to slow it down. And I think he went like this, slow it, slow it down. And instead, I thought he was saying, wrap it up, <laughs> wrap it up. <laughs> Does that look like a bow? He's like, wrap it up. So anyway, you can understand how that works. <laughs> so I was standing here thinking, but I've been talking so fast and it hasn't been that long, has it? I know I'm nervous, but I haven't lost track of all time and my surroundings. So anyways, but I thought, okay, I better wrap it up. <laughs> and so I just chucked a couple of pages of my notes and I was just like, all right, we're going to jump to the end and wrap it up. So yeah, if anyone, if I start talking too fast, feel free to give me a sign to say, slow it down, but maybe do like slow it down <laughs> and then if it does start to go along then I did like David's kind of wrap it up it's a nice put a bow on it yeah all right but uh okay so the passage we're gonna talk about is uh Jesus in the synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth um and it's an important passage for Luke um while Matthew and Mark place this event later on into Jesus's ministry Luke makes it his first public appearance. And for Luke, this, uh, this event in Jesus' life is programmatic for the rest of his ministry. Like Luke uses Jesus' message here and his dialogue with uh, the people in the synagogue to signal the themes that he's going to develop during the rest of his Gospel of Luke and also into the book of Acts. And so I want to flesh out three of those themes and dive into them. Um, the first of which is Jubilee. And Jubilee is a theme that appears quite often in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, David mentioned it when he was talking about Elijah, during when Elijah was doing baptisms. And I think our speaker two weeks ago, Steve, talked about it when he was also discussing this passage a little bit. So I want to dive a little deeper into Jubilee. Um, and then we want to talk about uh, the concept of boundary crossing. The way that throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is going to go to great lengths to cross boundaries that oftentimes make people uncomfortable in order to reach and save the lost. And he's going to do that with the outcasts of Israel, the lame, the blind, the leper, the unclean. And he's also going to do that all the way to the Gentiles and even marginalized Gentiles. And he communicates that in, um, in a roundabout way in his message here to the synagogue in Nazareth. 
Um, and the third theme, I wanna talk about just the difficulty that we have when Jesus crosses boundaries. The, the why that was difficult for the people in uh, Jesus' hometown to hear and why that's actually oftentimes difficult for us to hear. Um, because yeah, we're, we're no, no different than them in our response when Jesus does things that we don't expect and that make us uncomfortable. So first, uh, Jubilee. Now what is Jubilee? Uh, this is a, a concept from the Hebrew Bible uh, in, in its laws are found in Leviticus 25, and they're mainly uh, that this idea of release, that everything goes back to its original state. So slaves are freed, uh, debts are forgiven, and property is restored to its rightful owners. So everything is going back into its right place. It's basically a reset. Um, it's also a restoration so if you have, let's say if you were poor and you had to mortgage your property um, to, in order to pay your taxes, or if something was stolen from you in the Jubilee year, you're going to get it back. So Jubilee then becomes a relief for the poor, and it becomes cause for celebration. Um, it's also something that uh, serves as kind of to heal society, because you know, we're all in, in systems of oppression, we're all, we all get caught up in systems of oppression. And I think Jubilee, in a way, it's like throwing a wrench into that system of oppression so that the poor get their land back. And those who exploit are also freed from exploitation because when the people that exploit are also trapped in that. We all end up all trapped in this system. Um, and so that end of oppression is a big theme of Jubilee, the end of oppression. And the laws of Jubilee actually reference several times don't oppress your brother, do not oppress your neighbor, as they discuss the price that you sell property for in lieu of the Jubilee, because they, they get into a good bit of detail. But you, you follow me with the idea. This is basically like a release. Everything is, people are released from bondage, and everything is, goes back to its original state. And when Israel faithfully observes the Jubilee, God promises to pour out blessing. He promises specifically that he will cause the land to uh, yield its produce the way it's supposed to be. And even this is a reversal of the curse. And that reversal is also a big theme of Jubilee, where uh, if, you know, that idea that if you're, if you're on the bottom, then you'll be kind of brought, brought up. And people on the top, and sometimes if they have made it to the top by exploiting, they'll, they'll be brought down. And so there's a reversal of fortune that we see in the Jubilee. Um, so Jubilee, this theme shows up in Luke quite a bit, and he actually begins it all the way back in the story of Mary and Joseph. So he has Joseph um, called back because of, this, of the census that Caesar Augustus does. He has Joseph go all the way back to Bethlehem to his hometown. And that was something that during Jubilee happened. Everybody returned to their land, so you return to your father's house. Um, he also has it in Mary's song, so Mary's song, when she finds out that she's going to give birth to Jesus, and she bursts forth into praise, part of her song includes a reversal. So she talks about the way that God has raised up the poor and that he's lowered the mighty and he's given strength to the weak and he's made the weak strong, or the strong, he's weak and the strong. Um, and he also shows it in John the Baptist's ministry. So John the Baptist comes preaching judgment and repentance. And when people ask him what to do, what shall we do? John the Baptist says, if you have two tunics, give to the one who doesn't have. 
And he says to the tax collector, don't collect more than is fair. To the soldier, he says, don't intimidate people. Uh, don't be satisfied with your wages and don't bear false witness. Basically, don't use your power to oppress your brother. There's that, that uh, theme of an end to oppression and uh, justice in society. Um, we also see it in Jesus's healing and deliverance ministry. So he's going to walk out of the synagogue in Nazareth after having announced what he's come to do. And he's going to go to work healing in Capernaum and all over Galilee. And his healing is pitched as a release. So he is releasing people from demons, from diseases, and even from death. Uh, for example, when he heals Peter's mother-in-law, he rebukes the fever and the fever leaves her and she's released from it. As if the, the fever was an oppression on her, as if sickness is an oppression that weighs us down and keeps us from being free and also keeps us from our natural state from the way that God created us to be to serve him. So she, he releases her from that and she's freed. And that in a, is in a sense a small jubilee for her. And the same with death. Our, we were created for life. The, natural, the, the, the good state is life. And Jesus releases, he uh, raises the widow's son, releases him from death and frees him. Um, and then demons the same way. He frees people from demonic oppression. So there's this concept of release. Um, and in the Beatitudes, we have the blessed are the poor. So the poor raised up, but woe to the rich. Those who have exploited for their riches get brought, brought low. Um, and then ultimately, all of this is building to the ultimate jubilee, which is our release from sin. Um, because that's that, that's that sin that has came in in the garden and in the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden and corrupted our nature and has distorted us. Like Jesus is actually out not just to restore injustice in society or to correct injustice within society. He's correcting like the injustice within us and the, the, he's releasing us from that burden of sin. And then when he releases us from that burden of sin, then that has ripple effects throughout society because then we live justly and then we live out a jubilee ethic. Um, so this is a theme that he does. He comes back to often and, um, and it's a beautiful theme in the sense we're all invited to a banquet. We're all invited to participate in this um, this freedom and in this total release all surrounded, all around Jesus. So our second theme in this passage is um, this idea of Jesus crossing boundaries. Um, so we already have in the uh, Isaiah 61 quote that Jesus reads, and I'll read that again, um, the way that Jesus is going to go after the outcast. So he says, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that acceptable year of the Lord, that's Jubilee. And this is Jesus's manifesto. This is what his mission is going to be. And he's announcing that in his first public appearance in Nazareth. And these people that he's going to go after, we know it, the, the, uh, the poor, the blind, the captives. And later on, we know he's going to interact with lepers. He's going to act, interact with an unclean woman. He's going to interact with dead people, demonic oppressed uh, people. He's going to interact with the people on the fringes of society. Um, you know, he's criticized so often for spending time with tax collectors and sinners. So the, but these are the people Jesus says over and over again, these are the ones I've come to save. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. 
but he'll be criticized for that because he's crossing boundaries that kind of keep society in order. And that's, but that's his mission. And that's what he's announcing in some way here is I'm going to cross boundaries. And not only these boundaries within Israel regarding to reach the outcasts of Israel, but he's also going to cross boundaries, even sharper boundaries, to reach the Gentiles. And he telegraphs that in our passage. I'm going to read that again. When he references explicitly two Gentiles, um, the widow at Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. So backing up to our passage, he says in verse 24, Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to, no one, but to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. All right, so I want to look a little bit at these two characters, um, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. So the widow, you know, there was a famine in all of the land, including Israel, and there were many hungry people, but God sends Elijah to the widow um, And interestingly, Elijah and the widow share in table fellowship. So we know that, you know, Luke is writing his gospel. He also wrote Acts. And we know that in Acts, you know, there are many issues with how to incorporate Gentile believers into the believing family. And table fellowship is one of the most contentious issues in Acts. So it's not that I'm not saying that uh, the author of of Kings is uh, discussing using this story to talk about Jewish and Gentile table fellowship. But I do wonder if that's in the background of Um, Luke's reference to this widow Elijah, but we basically have uh, a Jewish prophet sharing table fellowship with a Gentile woman, and uh, Jesus is referencing this story. Um, And even days later, um, this widow's son will die, and Jesus will come in and uh, raise him from the dead. And so there we have an example of resurrection for a Gentile, um, which is taking that a step further. Now, Naaman the Syrian he is uh, an even further example. He's not only a Gentile that Elisha ministered to, not only a Gentile, and not only a marginalized Gentile because he was a leper, um, but he was also an active enemy of the people of Israel. And his story in Second Kings opens with him having just come back from a raid where they kidnapped Israelite women. And then the Syrian king sends Naaman to the king of Israel to be sent to Elisha, to be healed of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel gets the message, he panics. He says, what am I going to do? How, how, I mean, how can I heal a leper? In a sense, now what is this king of Syria going to come and do to me? And Elijah, Elisha says not to worry. He was sent here so that he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so in a sense, this mission that you know, Naaman coming to Elijah is in a way that so for Naaman to know God. So there's already a little bit of a theme of this Gentile Naaman coming to know God through his healing. And when he comes to see Elisha, Elisha has him dip seven times in the Jordan River. And seven times dipping in the Jordan River in order to be cleansed reminds me of baptism. And again, not that the author of Second Kings was discussing baptism in this story, but I do wonder if Luke's reference to it is a hint to baptism, and we know later Gentile baptism. Um, and with Naaman, even you know, taking his story a step further, when he, uh, when he departs from Elisha, you know, he, he's come to believe in God. 
Um, it's an early example maybe of Gentile salvation, of Gentiles coming to know the Lord. And he's talking to Elijah and he's basically said, he says, you know, I'm going to have to go back to Syria. I'm going to have to go back to my pagan culture and to my master. And my master is going to take, I'm going to have to hold his hand and walk into the temple. And he's going to bow before the God in the temple. And I'm going to have to kneel down before the God and bow with him. So he says, God, forgive me when I have to do that, but I don't know any other way. And I, I, don't, I see in this uh, an example of, uh, if we were to take it to Luke's day, then this is a Gentile believer struggling to navigate his new believing life within a pagan culture. And we know that's a big issue in the book of Acts, is how do these Gentile believers um, live out their faith within the pagan culture around them? And you have issues like what to do about food that you buy in the marketplace and what do you do with food sacrificed to idols like how do you live faithfully as a gentile believer in this pagan culture um so i think luke you know might be using these two examples to signal like all that god is going to do with the gentiles and yeshua mentioning this uh in the synagogue is also signaling to his hometown to his brothers that i'm not only here for you but i'm also coming for the gentiles um and I want to talk a little bit about why that was difficult for them, because sometimes we, we can forget um, what a boundary that was, and also how entrenched that boundary was, and why that boundary was there. Um, so I know as Christians, sometimes we read these stories, and we are shocked that Israel isn't immediately, um, uh, doesn't immediately respond to God, isn't immediately obedient and doesn't immediately receive God as if we always do. Like in the story of the wilderness, when the Israelites complain uh, after having seen the miracles of God, when they cross the Red Sea, they, they grumble and complain. And I read that and sometimes people say, well, how could they not trust God after all they saw him do? And I read that and say, I have done that so many times. And I know we all have. I have seen God do big things in my life and then turn around a few days later when I have a headache and say, why have you forsaken me? (laughs) So uh, in our case here, I think that, um, you know, the crowd in Nazareth, I I actually, I really understand what their, uh, why they had difficulty with this. And uh, I want to start kind of with their, you know, their, their messianic expectation. You know, kind of the, maybe the popular messianic expectation was of a Davidic Messiah, someone who's going to come in and he is going to subdue all of the nations that have been abusing us for so many years. And he is going to elevate us to our rightful place. So then all the promises that God has made to us over the years, all these promises that have seemed so far out of reach, all the injustices we've experienced over all these years will be finally remedied. And, you know, Jesus comes in and he's kind of saying in a roundabout way, that's not exactly the type of Messiah I'm going to be. I am not going to come in and destroy the Gentiles. And I want to look back at this passage uh, that he quotes in Isaiah 61. Now, Steve two weeks ago referenced this, but as David always reminds me, nobody remembers anything from the sermons. So I'm going to revisit it so that we can remember it together. Um, Yeah, so the Isaiah passage that Jesus quotes, uh, it's from Isaiah 61. And I'm going to read it in its length. 
and you, we can see um, where it differ, where he, you know, where he cuts it off basically, because he leaves a part out. Um, in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He's sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. And so if we jump over to Luke, we see that he stops at to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and he leaves out the day of vengeance of our God. And if Steve said two weeks ago that, that uh, at, this time, at this time, people read that day of vengeance to be pointing towards the Gentiles, this idea that God was going to send his Messiah and he was going to take vengeance on the Gentiles for all that they'd abused the people of Israel. And now here Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to take vengeance on the Gentiles for the ways that they have hurt you. And not only am I not here to take, to not take, not only am I not going to take vengeance on the Gentiles, I'm actually going to minister to them in the way that Elisha and Elijah went and left Israel, went across the boundaries of Israel and ministered to Gentiles. And not only am I going to minister to them, but I'm going to save them. And I am inviting them as well into the family. This jubilee that Jesus is declaring is also a jubilee for Gentiles because Gentiles have been outside of the family of God, estranged from the covenants and the commonwealth of Israel, the people who are far off will be brought near. And that's part of a restoration of all things. So the Gentiles will be brought near through Jesus. And if you're a people who has experienced a great deal of pain um, and you've looked forward to the day when God would rectify those wrongs. And you hear that not only is that not going to happen in the way you'd expected, not only is he not going to come down on your enemies, but he's going to show care for your enemies and he's challenging, challenging you to as well. That's a, a really hard message to receive. I don't know if you've ever been in, a, in an argument with someone or angry at someone where uh, you feel wronged and you feel hurt and so you go to a friend and you take it to your friend looking for support and you're looking for your friend to back you up and basically kind of build you up because you feel a little, you feel threatened and you want your friend to just uh, trash this other person and agree that they're horrible and you're right. So you'll feel better. You'll, you will feel more secure in that. But instead you have a wise friend and your friend doesn't do that. Your friend actually points out some areas where you might've been wrong areas where you can repent and grow and shows care for your enemy and also encourages you to show care for your enemy. Uh, that's happened to me before. It happened to me not too long before I left for Israel. And my reaction, I was furious because I had gone for comfort and I was feeling insecure because of this argument. And uh, I was looking for security and I didn't find the type of security I was looking for. Instead, I was challenged to let go of my need for vengeance and let go of my need for that type of security, which is a false security. Um, I was challenged to unclench my fists, and I didn't want to because I felt safe with my fists clenched like that. 
We feel safe with when we, when, we, uh, when we feel under threat. We get fight or flight. And I was challenged to let go of fight or flight and just release it. And that's what Jubilee is in a way, is it is a challenge to let go of that fight or flight and let go of our self-protection and our defenses and just release it and just take, take a deep breath and step into all of that Jesus is offering us. Um, so for me, I find it very understandable that the people of Nazareth um, get angry. Their first reaction is anger uh, when Jesus tells them that he is actually going to care for the people who have abused them for years. Now, my last point here, um, you know, I want to talk about uh, what Jesus is actually offering them. If it's not exactly what they are expecting or what they expected of a Messiah. Um, And Luke tells the story of a banquet so Luke actually has Jesus eating a lot. I'm going to jump ahead to uh, Luke chapter 14. Verses 21 to 24. Um, so there's a, a master who throws a banquet and he sends his servants out to bring people in. He says, uh, so that servant came and reported these things to the master. The master of the house, being angry, said to a servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, master, it's done as you've commanded and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. So he, he, there's an invitation extended originally to people, and they refuse to come. They're too busy. They don't want to come to the banquet. And so the master extends the invitation to the outcast, to the, to the lame and the blind. And there's still room, so then he extends it to the people in the highways and byways. And in this parable, I see an exa- uh, Jesus, the, cro- the crossing of boundaries, first to the outcasts and then to the Gentiles. Um, and so the, the people of Nazareth in that, in that moment, they, they weren't able to, they, re, they resisted stepping into the banquet. So Jesus was standing there offering them a banquet and they were unable to enter in. And often we're unable to enter in. And that, that banquet, um, it's basically, it's Jesus himself. He's offering himself. And uh, I want to say that that's, uh, that's a hard concept for me to grasp. Having been a Christian all my life, this that, that the Jubilee is actually Jesus, that all that, we, all that we want, all that we need, all that we desire is in Jesus. And he's inviting us to feast in, on him so that the banquet is to come in, to let go of all the things that you've been, uh, all the ways you've been trying to feed yourself, all the ways you've been striving to be okay, let it go and come in and sit down and feast on me because I'm the only, I'm all that you need. And all of these other things that you're grabbing a hold of, they're gonna end up enslaving you. So just let them go and come inside and join the party. So it, like I said, it took me, I don't, and I don't know why I didn't get this, but it took me a long time to, make, to realize that difference, that uh, the joy and the peace and the, the love and the freedom and the belonging that I desired weren't out there, uh, but they were in Jesus. And I don't, it was some, it was a, there was a subtle switch in my, my heart that happened this year um, because I, I came to Israel out, out of a place of maybe stuckness and I was hoping for my own jubilee and I'd been here for maybe half a year and I was still feeling stuck and I was standing on uh, Mount Herzl 
one night watching the sunset overlooking the Jerusalem forest and I was talking to God and I was frustrated and I was saying like I've tried you know that I'm trying and I'm praying and I'm fasting and I've, I've had good experiences but still nothing has touched that deep ache in me I still feel empty and I still feel lost and I said why aren't you showing me like the right place to go or the right job to do or the perfect fit or the right people why aren't you showing me where I can find life and then I heard in my, in my heart really clear, uh, Andrew, I've the one, I'm the one you've been looking for. All these years, I'm the one that you've been looking for. And it, it took me a second. And I realized that in all my time, like walking with the Lord, I've been standing there asking him, like, hey, show, okay, so I know you know where life is, so show, it, show me where it is, and I'll, I'll be obedient, and I'll go, and I'll, I'll follow that and lead me to life. And all the time, he's standing there in front of me saying, I, it's in me. Just, life is in me. Everything you want, not, it's not in the perfect job or the perfect place or even you being the perfect kind of person that you imagine. It's in me. You'll find everything you need in me. Uh, but instead, I think in the past, one of the things I've done is um, it's almost I've, I've sought to like manipulate Jesus. Um, and I think that that's something we can do very subtly without realizing it. And it's actually, I mean, there's a pag- like pagan roots to that. Um, but it's when we, we, uh, we look to Jesus to provide for all of our needs. We want him just to give us stuff. Um, and, and we see it actually a little bit in this story. Sometimes we can get, we get comfortable with Jesus and we expect him to work for us. And in pagan culture, that's what they did with their gods. You know, you realize you're, there's these forces beyond your control, the weather and the sun and the stars and storms. And so you have idols then that you can manipulate to manipulate the weather so it gives you some sense of control. And a lot of times we seek to do that with Jesus through our own behavior. We say, well, I'm... I'm I'm living a moral life, I'm going to church, I'm doing my best, why aren't you delivering? And that's still that looking for our fulfillment and joy and peace out there rather than looking for it in him, in a relationship, rather than feasting on him. And in a sense, that sometimes was, it can slip in, I think, in the messianic expectations that, you know, that um, all the problems out there would be fixed. And then we'd have our, you know, paradise on earth in here. But Jesus is saying that I, I am actually the paradise on earth. It's me. Um, yeah, that, but that, that, especially when we grow up in the church, we can get that kind of hometown entitlement and start to slip into that without realizing that that's what we're doing and forget that it's in Jesus and that relationship with Jesus that all, that's all we need. Um, so the invitation to this banquet is an invitation to feast on him. And, you know, how we do that, there's many different ways, but it's a relationship. And uh, we do it at the table when we come for the Eucharist, for communion. We take him in. Uh, we do it with the word when we sit and study. as a way of studying his nature, getting to know what he likes, getting to know who he is and who he says we are. That's basically taking him in, feasting on him, um, we do it when we pray. And um, I have a friend who prays for an hour every morning. And he says, you know, he, it, it, it's changed his life to do that, to spend that uninterrupted time with Jesus, just sitting there. And it's not easy. And sometimes sitting in silence can feel like death because you are not in control and you don't know what's going to happen. And sometimes it feels empty. 
But that's what it is to feast on God. And it's sometimes in those, in those moments, in the darkness, when you don't feel it necessarily up here, Jesus is doing deep things in you down here. He's working a deeper jubilee in your spirit and in your soul. So how do we feast on God? There's no way, there's no getting around the time, but because it's a relationship, that's what we're invited into. So we want to take that time to sit with the one who offers us life and offers us abundance and offers us all the love and the joy and the peace that we ever wanted. It is all in him, in that relationship, in him. Um, Another way is through community. Uh, You have friends like mine who uh, won't indulge your worst instincts, but will tell you hard truths for your own good. Um, We hear the voice of God often through our brothers and sisters, um, and that that can be a way that we feast on God is through godly community. Um, And ultimately, you know, Jesus wants to cross our boundaries. Um, In the same way that people in Israel, in in, in, uh, Israel back then, they were uncomfortable with Jesus crossing boundaries and hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. We are uncomfortable with Jesus crossing our boundaries. We boundary off pieces of ourselves that we are ashamed of. Our inner tax collector and sinner, we like to shut away and keep in the recesses kind of of our person. And we won't show anyone else, especially in a church environment. And we we are the worst at this, which is a shame because this should be the place of freedom and grace where you bring your full self because we all know we're sinners. We know we're outcasts. Um... But yeah, we boundary off pieces of ourselves and refuse to let anyone touch them. And not only do we not bring it forward to other people, but we also won't bring it forward to God. We'll bring the best parts of ourselves and say, well, you know, here's, I'm, I'm being good. And just, no, we're not, I'm not going to discuss that part of my life or that bitterness that we're hiding. Um, those are the things that he actually wants to get to, get, to touch because he wants, he wants to come into all, he wants all of us. And he wants to let us, to invite him into every part of our lives, to our entire being. In a sense, he wants to touch our inner Naaman, that inner leper, that uh, bitterness that we've been hiding or the sin that we're ashamed to share. He wants us to invite him into that. He also wants to touch our inner widow, the, the pain and the grief that we hold inside, that we stuff down and also don't want to give him access to because it hurts um, in, in a sense, within the story of Israel, I think you know, one of their, the difficulties they had with the Jesus's, um, that outreach to the Gentiles, the, the, the gospel going to the Gentiles was from the, the pain that they'd felt, the pain they'd experienced from Gentiles. So, I mean, that's a, that touches a tender place for the people of Israel when you start talking about loving the Gentiles because they have been so hurt by the Gentiles. And so Jesus is, he's inviting us to like to tear our to take our walls down all the the walls that we put up to keep ourselves safe and the walls we put up around each other to to keep uh, to keep safe in community or to to keep safe in the world to kind of strengthen our identity but also those walls in our hearts that we put up to boundary off pieces of ourselves he wants at that stuff he wants to heal our inner naaman and our inner widow um, and those that can be terrifying letting Jesus into those places. Um, David's talked in the past about Jesus taking a scalpel to us because, you know, in in order to cut away our flesh, in order to cut away those impurities to make us clean. And that can be, um, it's a, it can be a terrifying process to let Jesus at your, at your mess, but he is so gentle. 
There is no one more gentle than him, and he won't give us more than we can take, and he won't take what we don't offer to give because he's a gentleman, um, and he loves us. So there's an invitation there to enter into this jubilee and just whatever you're kind of holding on to, whatever you're holding back from other people and from Jesus, to let it go, to unclench your fists and take a deep breath and step in and feast on Jesus. Um, And I think one thing that helps us to do that, and I'll close with this, is just to really get a, a a bigger picture of who Jesus is. This is uh, the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through him, and nothing was made, nothing outside of him, nothing was made that was made. So the world was created through him, and the world was created for him, and we were created for him. And so our jubilee, our total jubilee, is not just a freedom from sin, but it is a return to our beloved, the one for whom we were created. And in the end, this beautiful thing, in the end, the picture is that all things will be gathered together in him. Paul says in Ephesians, in the fullness of times, God will gather together all things in Jesus, both things that are in heaven and things that are on earth in him. All the fragmented pieces of humanity will be gathered together in Jesus. And he is gathering together all the fragmented pieces of our own hearts in our lives, tearing down all the boundaries that we've put up to make us whole and to give us peace and to unite us in him and to bring us into this jubilee feast that he's offering um, Yes, with that, I'll close in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for your gracious offer of freedom and release, that we don't have to carry our burdens, all these heavy burdens, to keep ourselves safe, but that we can step boldly into this banquet hall and feast on you, and that you offer us all the love and the joy and the peace and the life and the belonging that we desire. You touch our deepest aches, and you are gentle with, our, with those things that are wounds, and you are quick to forgive, and you want to see us made whole, and you want to see us all brought together in you under this banquet hall and at this table feasting on you. And the way, the way that we were designed, God created us, God has a son, and he created us to be your bride. So Jesus, we thank you for uniting us with you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for leading us to Jesus. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.